All right, well, good morning, church. The faithful July 5th shower-uppers. God bless you. It should be illegal to have 4th of July on a Saturday night. Number one, because you don't get to miss work the next day. Uh, And number two, I'm moving about 10 miles an hour slower this morning than I normally do. Uh, So if you were here yesterday, like Chancellor said, we had a great time gathering uh, outside and just celebrating uh, as American Christians, not just freedom in Christ, but also freedom as Americans and and all that comes with that. It was a good time. Uh, But we played dodgeball for a couple hours out there. Um, And you don't realize when you like graduate high school that you just stop doing physically demanding things most of the time. And so after two hours of dodgeball, my shoulder feels like it's on fire. Uh, So all my over 50 dudes in the congregation, like I will not make fun of you for a couple days and then I'll be back to it. (laughs) But I feel you. I'm moving a little slower this morning, but regardless of how I feel, it's good to be in worship this morning with you guys. Uh, As we get ready to turn our attention to God's word, would you join me in a word of prayer and then we'll turn to the text. Lord Jesus, uh, it's true, we're grateful. Um, This holiday doesn't just remind us of the freedom we have as American Christians, Lord, but we look first and foremost to the true freedom that we have in you. Uh, Lord Jesus, because of your sacrifice on the cross, uh, you taking the punishment for our sin, you being raised to new life, because of those things, we are free, uh, truly free, not just here now, but for eternity. And so every day, we as your people are grateful for that. Uh, And yet, as your people here in America, we're grateful for uh, the freedoms that we have, the freedom to worship, the freedom to gather, all of these things being afforded to us by the government that you have blessed us with. And Lord, we know as your people, we've been talking about it. Lord, we know that this is not a perfect place. It is not the kingdom of heaven. We are foreigners here. And yet, despite all of its flaws, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this place that we call home. And we ask uh, more and more that you would help us be people who bring your kingdom, who bring righteousness to it, that it might continue and evermore become a better place because of your people's presence here and your presence with us. So we love you. We celebrate you, freedom in Christ, and freedom here in our country today. And uh, all God's people pray. Amen. All right, well, hey, if you got scripture, let's go to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to be starting off this morning. Like Chancellor said, we're starting off a new series right now. Uh, it's called Gospel Culture. And the reason that we're starting this series in particular uh, is in the last couple weeks, we've been talking about in our other series what it means for us to be peacemakers. That as we look to what our culture is experiencing, what our nation is experiencing, there's deep divisions, there's deep wounds, there's sins. At, at, at its root, that all of what we're going through as a culture, as a nation, or as a society uh, is manifesting itself because of sin. And the only way that sin gets dealt with is the gospel of Jesus. And so we talked about how as peacemakers, as bringers of reconciliation, as bringers of the gospel, that the church is actually the answer to what our society is struggling through that we bring with us the good news of Jesus. And so, as we think about as being God's people, it's so important for us, therefore, to be living out truly and rightly who we're called to be. If we have the answers that our society needs, the answer being the gospel, the reconciliation of Jesus, the kingdom of righteousness being lived out and brought here, if we have those answers... And if Jesus tells us that we are the way he chooses to bring that good news, then it's really important that you and I, together as the church, figure out 
how to be who we're called to be. And so over these next seven weeks, we're going to be looking at that. What does it mean to be a gospel culture? And, and as always, we look at this through the lens of first, it starts with me here and you here. And then it manifests itself together in our community that we could become that gospel culture that our culture abroad needs. And so with that, this morning we're looking at the idea of what it means for us to be a gospel culture of light. Light being a very popular biblical metaphor and theme. And so we're going to look at that this morning. And let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. And we're going to bounce between that passage and Ephesians 5. So you can start to put your finger uh, at Ephesians 5 as well. But let's read Matthew 5 right now. It says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And so Jesus, this text is coming at a sermon that Jesus is giving to his people. And so in the sermon, Jesus is a great teacher. uh, And one of the ways that he is a great teacher is he takes very common ideas or principles or items, and then he uses those as metaphors or analogies to communicate really big theological truths. And, And only a teacher like Jesus could take really simple things like salt and light and connect them to very important theological truths that you and I live our lives based out of. And the first one he uses is salt. Now, the metaphor for salt, the way they they used salt back in the old days, older than anybody here, in the ancient days, there was a lot of ways they used salt that you and I don't. Like, we use salt pretty much to make terrible food have some flavor. But for them, there were 11 different, at least 11 different uses that they had for salt. And each of those could be one of the metaphors that Jesus is talking about when he says, hey, you're the salt of the earth. And so the point here is not about getting the particular metaphor or use correct, but all 11 of those metaphors deal with the fact that salt is, or rather has, an external effect on things. And Jesus is making that connection, that hey, you as my people, you ought to be having an external impact on what's around you. You ought to have an effect on the things that are around you, be it people or institutions. You ought to be having some kind of effect on that. That's his assumption. But then he also says, if you lose that ability, if you lose the ability to be useful like you're supposed to be, then Jesus raises a really difficult question. What good are you? If you as the church, if you as God's people, if you're not doing what he needs you to be doing, if we're not doing that, then Jesus raises a really good question. What use are you? And make no mistake about it, we're here to be useful to Jesus. We're not here just to feel better. We're not here just to have our personal lives changed and restored. But then we serve a purpose. And Jesus asks the question of his people, if you're no longer serving that purpose that I need you to, we have a problem. 
what good are you to me? And that's kind of a harsh question, and none of us wants to imagine Jesus asking us that question, but he does. He expects that of his people. And we see that in Revelation 3. You bookmark that and read that this week. In Revelation 3, Jesus is speaking to a particular church. It's the church in a place called Laodicea. And he's writing to them, and he's got some harsh, some stinging criticisms for that expression, that church there. And here's what he's saying in verse 16 of, Re- of Le- Revelation 3. He's like, because you're lukewarm, because you're neither hot nor cold, because you're lukewarm, I'm going to, what? I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Ouch! Right? Can you imagine Jesus telling you that? Because you're useless to me, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That's not really something that you put up on the church marquee for passers-by to see, right? That's a harsh lesson. What Jesus is saying there, though, is, is not about being apathetic, like because you're not on fire for me or not cold towards me because you're kind of riding the fence, like I'm going to spit you out. That's not what he's talking about there. What he's talking about is another metaphor about water. And in that city, in Laodicea, they had really bad drinking water. So two cities were next door to them. One city had great cold springs that provided drinking water for Laodicea. And then another city next to them had natural hot springs. So you could go get cool drinking water from this city, or you could go to the other city and go to the hot spas that were medicinal, and each of those waters has purpose. That one's hot, it has a purpose. That one's cold, it has a purpose. And then he says to Laodicea, you're in the middle. And just like your water source, you're lukewarm. And what is a glass of lukewarm water good for? Getting spit out of the mouth. And so Jesus is connecting it, the church's usefulness to him. And he says, unlike the cold water, unlike the hot water, you're kind of here and you're useless. And then he says the harsh stinging criticism of because of that, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And so from the very beginning, when you and I talk about what it means to be a gospel culture, we have to accept the reality that to be the church means inherently that we're called to be useful to Jesus. That's your and I's purpose. We're here to be useful to him as a gospel culture to have an external impact on those around us, that Jesus has entrusted us with that calling. And the moment that you and I decide to kind of do our own thing and look after our own interests, we cease to become useful to him. And Jesus has a problem with that. Whether or not you and I do, Jesus has a problem with that. And so when we think about light this morning, there's two things in particular that we're going to look at. That light draws to it and light exposes things. And those are the two assumptions that we're going to have when we look at this biblical theme of what it means for you and I to be a gospel culture of light. And so let's look again at Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. He says, you are the light of the world. Now you and I, church, we're the light to the world, the light of the world, not because you are awesome. It has nothing to do with how great you think you are. You are the light of the world. Why? Because he is the light of the world. And Jesus claims that for himself in John 8, 12, when he says, I am the light of the world. So because he's the light of the world, we as his people, as his followers, therefore we too are light of the world. 
And it's our connection to Him, our becoming like Him, that allows us to be light to the world. And so the moment that we cease becoming like Him, well, we cease being and remaining the light to the world that He needs us to be. And so there's a connection, there's a challenge for us. Now, the good news is, is that calling means that you have great purpose. As a follower of Jesus, I don't care what job you have, whether you think it's insignificant or whether you think it's a great job, I don't care who you are, if you are a follower of Jesus, you possess great purpose. You possess great purpose. He's given that to you, that you would then be the, His light to the world. So you have great purpose, but then you and I also have a great choice too. And like the lamp, listen to what he says, neither do people light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. Why would you light a lamp and then cover it? It defeats the purpose of being a lamp. In the same way, he says, you're the light of the world. You have great purpose. And yet, oftentimes, we choose to cover it, and therefore, we become completely useless to the very thing that brings us our purpose. And we become useless when we make a choice to not become like Jesus. That's what makes us light of the world. Not just you for who you are. Despite what your mom and dad told you, you are great. But apart from Jesus, you are not the light of the world. Apart from him, his character, his righteousness, your darkness. No matter how many gold stars you got in preschool, your darkness. It's only him the light working and manifesting in and through us that makes us the light of the world. And so the challenge, the first question, church, that you and I have to ask is how am I manifesting righteousness, goodness, and truth in my life? Because I can't be useful to Jesus unless I'm becoming like Jesus. But I'm not becoming like Jesus if I'm not being with Jesus. I can't be useful to him if I'm not becoming him. And I'm not becoming like him if I'm not being with him. That's how this works. And so when you and I choose to not become like Jesus, when we choose not personally, when we choose not to bear fruit, then we're covering that lamp. That's a choice. We make a choice to become useless, as harsh as that sounds. I talked about Ephesians 5. Flip there. This is our other text. In Ephesians 5, 8 through 10, Paul's talking about how do we do that? How do you live out? How do you become like Jesus? And he says this, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Here it goes. For the fruit of the light, what's the fruit? It consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And verse 10 says, and, and find out what pleases the Lord. That's the expectation, right? If you're going to be light, if you're becoming like him, you're going to be manifesting. Manifesting means you're going to like develop and, and grow this fruit. You're going to manifest righteousness. You're going to manifest goodness. You're going to manifest truth. These are byproducts of what it means to be in the light. And the question you and I have to ask, church, is am I manifesting that stuff? It's a very black and white answer. I'm either bearing this fruit or I'm not. 
I'm either becoming useful to Jesus or I'm not. And it doesn't matter what you think you're doing. Jesus makes it clear, are you manifesting righteousness, goodness, and truth? That's what I'm looking for. That means you're becoming like me, and by becoming like me, you're becoming useful for me. And then look at verse 10 of Ephesians 5. In case you don't know how that looks or like where to start, it's very simple. Verse 10, find out what pleases the Lord. Find out what pleases him, and then the assumption is, then you do it. Right? This is some of the best advice. Think about any relationship. This is the best advice that I could give my newly married brothers, whether you're about to get married or been married for a little bit. Right? I am not going to write a book on marriage. My wife would support that decision. I'm not going to write the book. I could maybe make a pamphlet for you, like a couple bullet points about everything I've learned in 10 years. But here's one thing I have learned. It's the truth of Ephesians 5.10. Find out what pleases and do it. Right? For all my brothers who are newly married and wondering the mysteries of marriage, find out what pleases and do it. Why? Because that's just that's a part of a healthy relationship. So in 10 years, I found out two truths in my marriage. Number one, write these down, brothers. The kitchen trash can has to be empty before we go to bed. And number two, you don't go to bed before Taylor. That's it. That makes her happy. So in 10 years, brothers, how many nights do you think I've gone to bed before Taylor? Not many, <laughs> right? Find out what pleases and do it. Not only is that good advice for a healthy marriage when you're both doing that for each other, but the same thing for our discipleship. If you don't want to overcomplicate things, find out what pleases the Lord and do it. it is, it's not rocket science. You do not need a master's degree in scripture or in biblical theology to get this one down. Find out what pleases the Lord and do it. And guess what happens when you practice that very simple phrase? You begin to become like Jesus quickly. It's not rocket science. It's not this crazy formula of verses that you need to get in like the stars aligning in right order and then all of a sudden you've found the secret. Find out what pleases him and do it. And in that process, you will become like Jesus. And by becoming like Jesus, you'll find yourself becoming useful to Jesus. And that's something that when we live that out together, people are actually desperately hungry for the church to be light that draws people. Our culture is living in darkness. They're struggling through it, and they're looking for light. They're looking for you and I to live that stuff out. Why? Because it's heavenly and beautiful and good. And people are going to be wanting to be drawn to it. And they're hungry for it. And I, my hope and my prayer is that you yourself have found that here at the Community of Friends Church. My hope and my prayer is that when you hear, you realize, like, man, I want to be with these people. I want to be around these people. I want, if I have kids, I want my kids to be around these people. I want them to be influenced and shaped by this group of people. Why? Because there's just something different about this community. They're living out what it means to be light. They're people who are becoming like Jesus, and in the process of being useful to Jesus, they're being a light that is just drawing me into it. And that's what I love when I get to talk to people 
about how God brought them here and why they're here, almost unanimously, and I always talk about this because it's true, it's the community of people that draws them in and sticks them here. Is they find a community of people who are living out what we're talking about. And so if you've experienced that, imagine how hungry and desperate people who are not walking with Jesus are for that. And they don't even know necessarily what they're looking for. They just know maybe that they're wandering through darkness and they need to see God's people being a light that draws others in. It doesn't draw them into how great you are, but draws them into a group of people becoming like Jesus by finding out what pleases him and doing it, and all of a sudden, man, that is contagious. And it's a beautiful thing. People hunger for it. And like Jesus says in Matthew 5, then you become a city on the hill. In the midst of all the darkness, you see this light in the distance, and you're drawn to it. Odd connection. Anybody here from New Mexico? Good. Okay. So, we were coming back from Texas at the end of May, driving through. Unfortunately, you have to pass through New Mexico to get home. And as I was driving through New Mexico in the middle of the night, just complete darkness. Now, New Mexico's state motto is land of enchantment. I don't know who drove through New Mexico and was like, this is the land of enchantment. This is beautiful. Like for me, it's, there's a reason they filmed Breaking Bad in New Mexico. And so as I'm driving through it, it's pitch black all throughout New Mexico. My co-pilot's asleep, because that's what she always does. Everyone's asleep in the car. I'm driving by myself. It's pitch black in the middle of the New Mexico desert. There's just not a lot of things or people in New Mexico. And then all of a sudden, you see miles off the next town, right? How many of you guys have ever had that experience driving through the middle of nowhere? And you see the light. And it doesn't matter where that place is. There's just something comforting about being surrounded in the middle of nowhere and being surrounded by darkness, and then you see light up ahead. And it doesn't matter if that light is a gas station. There's just something about seeing light and going to it, and then you get there and you're like, this is better than that. Even if it's a gas station in Tucumcari, New Mexico, there's something better about being in that area than in the darkness. And in the same way, when Jesus says you're like a city on a hill, that's what the church ought to be. This place that when our culture is surrounded in darkness, they're hurting, they're broken, they're grappling through the effects of sin in our culture, they ought to be able to look to God's people and just see, man, there's, like, there's light there. And I'm drawn to it. I might not even know why, but I'm drawn to it and I want to be there. And then when they see it, they're like, yeah, I want to be here. I want to be here amongst this group of people who are just living differently. Now, they may not know why, but it's because we've sought out what pleases Jesus, and we do it, and we become people who are like Jesus, and that draws people into that. So, church, when we think about being a gospel culture, being a gospel culture of light, be light that draws people in. And the second calling, as we look at Ephesians 5, is that light exposes. And if we're honest with ourselves, the idea of being light that draws people in is a lot more friendly of an idea than being light that exposes. Which is why as the church, we've tended to do a better job of drawing people in through being like Jesus, but then when it comes to being light like Jesus that exposes sin, we kind of shy away from that one a little bit more. But look what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 
verse 11. He says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. So one of the other ideas for you and I to be a gospel culture is not just drawing people in with light, but then exposing darkness for what it is. And there's two levels to that. Number one, it's in here in this room, because we've always got to look to ourselves first. And then secondly is, yeah, church, we do have a call to be speaking against darkness in a broken world. Now, before we talk a little bit about that, one statement in the beginning. There's a way to expose darkness biblically, and then there's a way to do it unbiblically. So, and and the great question to ask to find out which side of the fence you're falling into is, am I trying to reconcile this person? So when I challenge someone, either in the church or whether I'm challenged, or even if I'm challenging people who don't know Jesus, is my heart, in exposing the conversation, is my heart to reconcile them? Is my heart to draw them closer to Jesus? Or is my heart just to expose it to expose it, and I don't really care what happens? If our heart is to reconcile, then we're in the right place. If our heart is just to bash people over the head with a theological stick, we're probably not doing it the right way. Not by probably, you're not doing it the right way. Sorry, I'll take that word out. It's my heart to reconcile both my brother or sister in the church and even maybe my family member outside. Am I engaging in conversations about what is truth just to crack them over the head? Or is it because I genuinely want to see them reconciled to God? That question will usually help us know if we're doing it the right way or the wrong way. And then there's a lot to walk through that after that. But our purpose has to be to reconcile. And we get that when we look at the way that Jesus handles darkness. When you read the Gospels, I have a hard time seeing any situation that Jesus allowed the conversation around him, if it had to do with sin, he never stays silent about it. Ever. He never lets a person engage in conversation or share a meal with him, talk about the sin, and then Jesus just doesn't say anything. He always speaks against the sin, but always with the express purpose of reconciling that person. See, his tone was always, no, that is wrong, and and you ought not do that anymore, but let me show you the better way. Jesus just doesn't go around and start cracking people with a theological stick. Could he? Yes, he could, but he doesn't. So how do we do that, church? And to be honest, the church is not very good at being light that exposes, let alone within the safety of these walls with each other, but also outside when we're engaging with a broken world that needs the truth we have. We're not very good at doing that in the way that Jesus would call us to. And yet, church, if we're going to be a gospel culture, the one that our culture needs, we have to learn how to do that well. To expose that which is wrong amongst us and around us, but in a way that draws people to Jesus, doesn't push them away from Jesus. Because that has the exact opposite effect of what we're going for. 
in case you didn't know that. Our job is not to just crush people theologically with all the ways that they're wrong and then just kind of be like, oh, well, Jesus, sort that out now. I did the heavy lifting. It's how do I expose what is dark in my culture but also draw people in that. And in the last month, you guys, as the church, in in the last month of June, there were two big opportunities for the church to engage with our culture. Right? Obviously, our, our, our culture is wading through the sin of racism. I'm not wading through it. We're stumbling through it. We're not wading through it. We're stumbling through it. And the church has that voice that needs to be there to show people that racism is sin. It's contrary to the heart of God. And yet, here's the better way. Right? That's what we're called to do. And that's how our voice needs to speak into that conversation. And for most of us, we kind of get that one. But then there's the opposite side. And this is where the church, another issue in where the church has a struggle of engaging in. But June is Pride Month in our nation. And that is one that nobody wants to talk about. And maybe even when I said Pride Month, you kind of did the the shift. Because like the church just doesn't like talking about things that are controversial. How do we engage with our culture in issues of sin that are not biblical, but in a way that has the effect of reconciling people? How can we do that, church? How do we engage with those issues while still saying, hey, biblical worldview, we as the church, we can't support these things, either racism or sexual lifestyles that, don't, uh, that aren't in line with the heart of God? We can't do these things. I can't, we can't say it's okay, but how do we talk about them in a way that actually draws people to the light of Jesus, doesn't just push them away from it? And so oftentimes, because we don't know how to do that, we just stay quiet about it. But the problem is that in all these issues, our silence speaks loudly to our culture. What does it look like? And the problem is, church, is that when we do that, it's not going to make us popular. Look what John says about Jesus in John 3.19. He says, this is the verdict. The light came into the world. People loved the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. And here's the thing that you and I have to ask ourselves, church. We're staying quiet because, to be honest, most, most of us fear conflict, even when it comes to the gospel even healthy conflict. And yet I got to ask myself the question, if the Son of God managed to get himself killed, I mean, am I going to do any better? So following the message of Jesus, being light of the world that does not condone what is sinful, but in a loving way reconciles, that's not always going to be a popular message. And you have to accept the fact as the church, that's going to be the case. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come up as we, as we wrap up. But I'm going to wrap up with John 10. John 10, this is where Jesus, if you ask yourself, how could the Son of God manage to get himself killed by people? As the light of the world, he was exposing things that weren't okay. And he even did it in the best way possible. And in John 10, as he's exposing the wickedness of people around him, the prevalent sins of the culture around him, they began to pick up rocks to throw at him, to kill him. And as they're picking up rocks in John 10, 32, Jesus asks the question. He says, I've done many good works from the Father in front of you. For which of those do you stone me? I've done nothing but good things. I've done nothing but speak the truth to you in a loving way, and yet now you're picking up rocks to throw at me. For which of my good deeds do you now stone me? 
So the church, church, my challenge to us is we need to be a gospel culture of light. A light that draws people, but also a light that exposes that which is not in line with the heart of God. How do we do that in a way that reconciles and doesn't drive people away? How can we do that in the way of Jesus? Because that's what our culture's hungry for. Whether they know that or not. Would you pray with me, church?